Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. I'm Erica, a lung and ICU doctor. Every day in my ICU and clinic, I see patients who are there from breathing unhealthy air. And I started Air Health, Our Health to focus more upstream on the importance of healthy air for healthy people and healthy economies. Thanks for joining me. There are many elements of air pollution that can affect our health. This podcast has previously covered the health impacts of PM2.5, which makes up part of the Air Quality Index, or AQI. The other main component of the AQI is ozone. Ozone is interesting because it is actually a secondary pollutant. It forms as a chemical reaction when oxides of nitrogen and volatile organic compounds, which are emitted from vehicle exhaust, industry, and more, react with other chemicals in the air in the presence of sunlight and heat to form ozone. Ozone is good up high and bad nearby. (laughs) It is a very reactive compound. It can cause irritation to the airways, including cough and sore throat, but it also makes it hard to breathe and worsens lung disease and increases the risk of infection. One study even showed that exposure to certain levels of ozone over 10 years was associated with the same impact on lung destruction as 29 pack years of cigarette smoking. I worry a great deal about people with asthma and other lung diseases, and I wanted to discuss ozone with someone who researches the links between ozone and lung disease. Today, I am joined by Dr. Nicholas Nasikas of Harvard University. He obtained his MD at Brown University, where he also did his internal medicine residency, as well as his fellowship in pulmonary and critical care medicine. He is now on faculty at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center and a member of the Center for Environmental Health at the Harvard School of Public Health. He also serves on the American Thoracic Society Environmental Health Policy Committee and studies the impact of climate change and air pollution on health. Welcome to the Air Health, Our Health podcast. Thanks for having me today. So first, why don't you tell me about yourself and how you came to study the health effects of air pollution and ozone in particular? I grew up in Virginia and always had an interest in the environment. I was a kid who loved to play outside. And in college, I studied environmental science. And through my experience in college, I really got exposed to a lot of the different issues facing um, our environment and knew that I wanted to do something that was related to climate change. So once I went to med school and started residency, I really found ways to incorporate climate change into whatever I was doing. And sometimes that was hard. You know, sometimes it wasn't that medicine was always talking about climate change. So sometimes it's hard to find that, that, that link. But I got connected with an incredible mentor. I had a mentor at Brown, Greg Valenius, who's now at the EU, who really exposed me to, you know, climate change and the health impacts. And, and through, through his mentorship, I really um, started my career in environmental health. Excellent. Well, I think today we were going to talk um, about ozone. So what is ozone and where does it come from? Yeah, so ozone, it's a really reactive gas that's found at the ground and up in the, you know, in the atmosphere. And when we talk about ozone, I think it's really important to remember that there's good ozone and there's bad ozone. Uh, When we think of good ozone, that's the ozone layer. That's something that exists high up in our atmosphere that protects us all. And um, we all probably can remember back in the day talking about the ozone layer. So there's good ozone that's way up high in the atmosphere. Then there's bad, bad ozone. And bad ozone is found down at the ground. And that's the air that we breathe. So the, the ozone that we don't want is the ozone that's found in the air that we're breathing down on the ground. So good ozone up in the atmosphere, bad ozone down on the ground. And where does it come from? Yeah, where does it come from? So ozone is formed from different um, emissions from um, cars, factories, industry, from two different things. So there's something called nitrogen oxides, NOx, um, and there's something called VOCs, volatile organic compounds. And those are just fancy terms for different compounds, different chemicals that are found that um, in the air that then react together 
the form ozone. And that reaction happens in the presence of sunlight and heat. So when those two things, VOC and NOx, come together, it forms um, ozone. And you've studied the links between ozone and health. So what health impacts does ozone have? Yeah, one of the reasons I got interested in ozone is because its formation depends on heat, you can understand how it's uh, connected to climate change. So if our environment is going to get warmer and warmer and warmer, you know, that's going to cause more ozone to be formed. And so that was what kind of um, sparked my interest in studying ozone. And ozone in particular has a lot of different health effects. Ozone can cause things like cough, uh, trouble breathing, shortness of breath. It also is linked to different diseases like heart disease, and um, ozone has been linked to death. And so it's a very important thing for us to study. It's a, it's a dangerous air pollutant when it's found at the ground and can cause a lot of um, health problems for people. And do you have any sense in how much we're paying in terms of healthcare costs for the health effects of ozone, both as you know families and potentially communities? Yeah, so lots and lots and lots of money. So air pollution in general, there was a study that was put out by the Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air, and they looked at ozone globally and found that the economic and health costs of air pollution uh, total are $2.9 trillion globally in 2018. So that's one year, $2.9 trillion globally for air pollution. And when they looked at ozone, so there's a lot of different air pollutants that, that went into that calculation, but one of them is ozone. And so when they looked at just ozone, globally, the cost of ozone air pollution on health is $380 billion per year. Um, so this is, um, this is a, a very expensive um, um, air pollutant. And then, so that was globally. And then uh, just in the U.S., you know, when we look at, it's hard to distinguish between all the different air pollutants, but in the U.S., if you take all the air pollutants um, together, we're spending about $790 billion a year in, in health costs uh, related to air pollution. So, and ozone is, is, one of those, was, is, is one of those key pollutants. Yeah, not to mention all the, you know, death and disease, but just if you're worried about the dollars too, all these things end up costing way too much. Yeah, and I think that's important. It's, you know, this is this is not just something that we breathe in that causes health problems, but the, those health problems translate into, you know, days where you can't work. If you can't breathe, you can't work. And if you, or you can't send your kids to school because they can't breathe. And so the economic costs are important. So are the number of days lost to, you know, having to stay home because you can't breathe. And and then, you know, it causes death. And so I think you, know, you take all those things together, it's, it's clearly something we need to do something about. Absolutely. And you helped write the American Thoracic Society or ATS testimony to the Environmental Protection Agency for the ozone transport rule and the National Ambient Air Quality Standards. Can you talk about the background of what that standard is, what an ozone transport rule is, and why the ATS found it so important to comment? Yeah. So, you know, the United States Environmental Protection Agency, um, the EPA, it is tasked with figuring out what air pollutants cause health problems, and then deciding, well, what are the safe levels of those air pollutants? You know, ideally, in a, an ideal world, you'd bring all the air pollution down to zero, but that, that's not achievable right now. So EPA has to decide, well, what level is safe for people? And so every decade or so, they figure out, based on all the science that we have, our understanding of um, what levels are safe for people, what should the standard be? And a standard is just a fancy way of saying, you know, this is the level at which we expect states and our country to um, uh, to regulate our air pollution to. 
right now, our standard for ozone is 70 parts per billion. So that's just the amount of ozone in the air. Um, parts per billion stands for the, is the concentration of ozone. So what they're saying is for, for the country, we, we've set a, um, a level of 70 parts per billion uh, for ozone. And um, we think that above that threshold, there's going to be problems with um, human health. And below that threshold, hopefully human health is protected. And with more and more science that's come out, um, especially looking at lower levels of air pollution, we know that that level is probably not protective of human health. And so for a long time, ATS has actually advocated for lowering the standard to 60 parts per billion. And devising these standards, you know, on a state-by-state -state basis, uh, there's states that are big polluters and then there's states that aren't bigger polluters. But, you know, we know that air pollution doesn't obey state lines. And so, you know, the state that is next to the big polluter gets penalized for the air pollution that drifts over their border and into their state. So the EPA is really trying to take a closer look at this and figure out, you know, how can we be good neighbors? It's called the good neighbor rule, but how can we be good neighbors? And, you know, how do we protect the states that are doing a good job within their state of regulating ozone without being penalized for their neighbor who's, you know, dumping all their ozone air pollution into their state? And um, ATS is particularly interested in this because it might be a better way for us to start regulating ozone and really understanding how we can do more to protect human health. I think you started touching on it earlier, but how does a warming climate influence the production of ozone? You know, as I mentioned, the ozone is formed from different things in the air and that reaction the, that causes the ozone is, is you know, catalyzed or, or made possible by heat and sunlight. And so, we know that climate change is causing higher temperatures and um, ozone is really a, you know, I should mention that ozone is really an air pollutant um, that typically exists in the summertime um, in, in higher temperatures. So I live here in the Northeast. And so ozone concentrations during the winter are, um, are quite a bit lower than they are during the summer. And so climate change is causing uh, longer summers, right? Higher temperatures. And with higher temperatures, there's going to be more ozone that's going to be formed. I will say that ozone overall over the past couple of decades has been going down. So overall ozone concentrations in the U.S. have been going down. I'll also just say that, you know, it's it's regional. And so there's going to be areas that are going to have more ozone and areas that are going to have less ozone. And so it's not just a problem with, you know, climate change overall. It's a, it's a problem with climate change on a, on a local level as well. And I think this is something you've studied and looked at, correct? Looking at kind of different scenarios in which we emit more, emit less in conjunction with a warming climate. Can you talk about what your studies have found for people with respiratory diseases? So ozone can trigger asthma exacerbations and asthma attacks. And so I was really interested in looking forward uh, to the future. What is climate change going to mean for people that suffer from asthma? And um, I worked with the EPA to look at different possibilities in the future. So one possibility for the future in terms of ozone is that we just can continue emitting what we call business as usual. So we don't make many changes. We just continue on our current path. And we know that our current path right now is going to be devastating, not only for human health, but for biodiversity across the, across the globe. And in particular, um, it has impl implications for asthma. 
And then let's say that the U.S. implements different policies, puts in place different policies to start addressing our emissions, start addressing climate change. Well, what does that mean? How many asthma ED visits could, you know, that are related to ozone um, exposure? How many could be prevented? And what would be the, the savings um, in that? And what we found was that if we implement policies that reduce ozone pollution across the U.S., we could prevent thousands of asthma ED visits related to ozone and save millions of dollars. And, you know, I think the other uh, thing that we found in the study was really that there's differences across the U.S. You know, not that's not true for every part of the U.S. There's there's certain regions of the country that are going to be hit harder than, than others. And I think it also just teaches us that, you know, the more we do to fight climate change, to fight air pollution emissions and reduce our fossil fuel burning, the better our health is going to be, you know, and clean air is good. You know, dirty air is bad. That's certainly the case for people that suffer from asthma. Absolutely. Sometimes it seems so simple that it should kind of go without saying, but I guess we end up saying it over and over again. <laughs> do you talk to your patients about this, like about ozone and climate change? Um, and if so, how do you have those conversations? Yeah. So as, uh, as, a, as a pulmonologist, I see patients um, in my clinic, a lot of whom have asthma. And the, the theme that comes up the most is, you know, we always talk about, well, what triggers your asthma? What, what makes your asthma worse? And one of the things that we, you know, we talk about is how do we avoid those triggers? And some of the triggers that people mention are things like humid air, are um, higher temperatures, especially going from hot air to cold air or cold air to hot air. You know, a lot of my patients talk about how their asthma is triggered by things in their environment. Again, pollen, temperature, humidity. And that lends itself pretty nicely to uh, talking about climate change. Climate change is going to make pollen seasons longer, more intense. It's going to cause higher temperatures. People are going to have to be going from AC, you know, air conditioning places to hot air and hot air to air conditioning places. And so the, you know, climate change really is going to affect people with, um, with asthma pretty significantly. And so when that comes up in, in my clinic, I will talk about, I'll really emphasize the importance of, of those environmental triggers and, and say, you know, that's, this is something that we need to try to avoid. But then I also try to say, well, some of this stuff is just unavoidable. And, and so what are the strategies that we can use to um, kind, of, um, kind of limit our exposures? I'll also just admit that um, I could be doing more to talk about climate change um, in my clinic. And, and, you know, maybe part of this, you know, I'd love to blame on time constraints in, a, in an office visit. But I think part of it is also focusing on what's real for the patient right there. You know, it's almost, you know, sometimes I feel like I can get the same message across by without actually saying the words climate change, by talking about pollen, by talking about, you know, a future with higher temperatures by talking about air pollution. But, you know, I think, I think there's a lot of room for, for improvement on my own part to really emphasize the health, the health risks associated with climate change. Well, and I think it's so hard because often the patients that suffer the most from this are the ones who have the least resources to do anything about it. I mean, you know, is there anything an individual can really do, especially an individual with asthma or family members of a patient or a kid with asthma to protect themselves or their families from the health impacts of ozone? Yes. Yeah, so if, if you go on CDC or any of these health websites um, and you look at what, if you have asthma, what can I do to avoid um, my asthma being triggered by ozone? And every website will tell you to stay inside. 
And it's sad. And, and because that's really the truth. Um, ozone, as I mentioned, is a very reactive gas. And so it exists outside. As soon as it hits your window screen or your curtains, it tends to be neutralized. You know, it, it kind of goes away. So ozone from the outside tends not to come inside as much. Um, so ozone levels inside of your home tend to be lower than what's outside. And so a lot of the recommendations are to stay inside on high ozone days. There's a lot of apps out there that can tell you what the air quality is and in particular what the ozone levels are. You know, there's government websites. One of them is airnow.gov. The Weather Channel also has a section on air quality. So there's a lot of references out there that tell you when air quality is bad. And on those days, people with asthma really should try to stay inside. And that's just the sad reality right now is um, now, you know, you have your pet that needs to go for a walk. You know, the recommendation would be that choose your time outside wisely. And so if you know the day is going to be particularly bad for ozone, that might be a day where you walk your dog or, or in the evening. And part of the reason being that ozone really spikes in the middle of the day. Again, it's formed by heat and sunlight. Um, and so ozone concentrations, the level of ozone in the, in the air is going to go up during the day and then decrease towards the night. So if you do have to go outside, you know, that might be a, a you know, morning or evening is a better time to do that. But, you know, I think that's really sad. It's, it's, it's the, the sad reality is that we have to choose for people with asthma, we have to choose our days outside a little more carefully. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it already seems so unfair. You know, people are the air they're breathing, maybe making them sick. But then the answer is, well, you have to stay in your house. So, you know, we can all keep emitting these things that make you sick. So obviously, you know, the hope and the solution would be for communities to just decrease the amount of ozone that's existing in their community. And um, are there strategies or policies that communities like states or counties or, you know, the federal government could be putting in place to try to help decrease ozone? Yeah, so one of the things I'll say is I think it's just an absolutely exciting. So um, unlike what I was just saying about staying inside, what I will say is it is also a very exciting time to be alive. And, and the reason I say that is because we're at a point where our technology, um, our renewable energy technology has advanced so much that really the cost of renewable energy in many places is lower than burning fossil fuels. And so there's now an economic incentive for places to really start to favor renewable energy. And I think that I find that really exciting. And so what does that look like um, in terms of how do we advocate for our patients with asthma and what can what can communities do? And what I would say is that, you know, on a community, state, national level, we really need to be advocating um, and incentivizing faster transition to renewable energy. So I think that's one thing. Um, and, and what does that look like on an individual or community level? Well, sometimes that's simply voting, you know, on an individual level, voting for policies that fight climate change, that improve human health. Um, and then on a community level, maybe that looks like, you know, bike lanes for people, encouraging people to take alternative forms of transportation, not necessarily their gas guzzling car. And so maybe that's the form of bike lanes. Other things that communities can do are, you know, we're at an incredible moment where, there's more and more EVs, electric vehicles that are coming onto the market and, you know, having charging stations accessible to people, I think is also valuable. I think the EV market is still, still a bit pricey, but, you know, over time that's going to change. And I think people are going to be more willing to buy EVs if they know that there's charging stations everywhere. 
So, um, you know, on an individual level, it can be voting. On a community level, it can be, you know, building the infrastructure, building out access to the, the electrified grid. And then on a, you know, state, federal, national level, it's really looking at policies that um, incentivize this transition. Because we have the technology and it makes economic sense. And so we no longer can make an argument that this doesn't, that the, the dollars don't add up. That's not true anymore. The dollars definitely add up. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I always talk about air health, our health, our wealth. It's, it saves us money. It saves us lives. It saves us health. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's 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 also just better. <laughs> I mean, I, so so electric cars are more fun to drive. You know, <laughs> an electrified um, economy is just a better economy. So I think I think it's it's really an exciting time, and um, I think things are going to be changing quickly, but. Um, I think obviously for people with with asthma, not fast enough, and and people with all sorts of heart and lung conditions. I think uh, you know we know air pollution is bad, especially for these vulnerable communities, and and this transition couldn't happen fast enough. But I'm still hopeful that we're at the precipice of rapid change here. Yeah, I share your hope. I guess after you know two plus years of a pandemic to keep doing pulmonary critical care, you've got to stay hopeful. <laughs> Somehow you have to hold on to every glass grasp of hope you have. So. Amen. Well, I want to be really respectful of your time. Um, is there anything else you want to add? No, thank you so much for everything you're doing on this podcast. I think, you know, and I think it's incredible. You know, it's an important forum of discussion. It's important for, for people to know that there's others out there that are thinking about these issues. And, you know, I, I hope we can all um, stay hopeful for the future. Amen. Yeah, let's end with hope. <laughs> okay, thank you. Like Dr. Nasikas, I struggle to talk to patients about the impact of ozone and climate change in the clinic. It just doesn't seem fair that people who may have disease that developed and worsened because of emissions, which they often had no part in generating, should have to stay indoors and monitor air quality to avoid having their disease worsen further. It is also staggering to think about the financial cost of all these health impacts of pollution. It is stunning that we are spending $2.9 trillion globally on the health impacts of air pollution, including $380 billion per year on health impacts of ozone. Experts say we could solve world hunger with a fraction of that. The Center for Research on Energy and Clean Air study that Dr. Nasikas mentioned showed that the cost we are paying now for air pollution is around 3.3% of global GDP, which is far more than the cost of a rapid transition off of fossil fuels. When I think about what else we could achieve with the $790 billion we are spending on the adverse health impacts of air pollution in the United States, it really does fire your imagination. Cleaning up the air saves lives and money. Not only is it better for the individual to not suffer worsening lung disease, it is also better for their families, their employers, the economy, and our healthcare costs in general. We all need to raise our voices about how much we are already paying to keep polluting as we are, and how much life, joy, and money we could save by rapidly transitioning off of fossil fuels. So what can you do? First, download the AirNow app or go to airnow.gov website to become familiar with the Air Quality Index, which incorporates ozone and PM2.5. To learn more about PM2.5 standards and their history, listen to the What's in a Standard episode with Dan Costa from Season 2. For more on how to use the Air Quality Index, listen to the What's in an Index episode with Dr. Francisca Rosser from last season. You can also vote for elected officials committed to addressing climate change. Write or call them regularly about your concerns about pollutants like ozone, which cause disease and can increase in the setting of rising temperatures. Advocate for policies in your community that can reduce ozone by decreasing the use of combustion for transportation, such as putting in more bike lanes, public transit, increasing walkability, and more. You can also consider a donation to the American Lung Association, who advocates tirelessly for clean air. 
If you like, you can also consider buying an AirHealth Our Health t-shirt, mug, hat, or tote that emphasizes the health and economic benefits of clean air. This can help spark a conversation with those around you. Proceeds also go to the American Lung Association. We're coming to the end of the podcast. For more information about the importance of healthy air, please visit airhealthourhealth.org and follow on Instagram and Facebook. Remember, if you do nothing else, don't light things on fire and breathe them into your lungs. This applies to tobacco, diesel fuel, forests, and more. Thanks for joining me today. I am a full-time physician and not an epidemiologist or public health expert. This podcast is for your education and entertainment, but should not be interpreted as individual medical advice. Please consult with your own healthcare team to determine what is right for your health. Thank you and stay safe.